Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The Economist's technology and science podcast, Babbage. On today's program, well, it is a horticultural treat. This week, it's a special, as we pose the question, what can science do for my garden? We've been exploring the latest techniques to map the DNA of plants. There's only about, okay, wait for it, 130 plant genomes in total. Also on the show, we ask if pests and pathogens are likely to wipe out our woodlands. One of the biggest issues is the emerald ash borer in North America. It's killing literally billions of ash trees. And later in the episode, we discover if the Millennium Seed Bank is the ultimate horticultural insurance policy for the planet. Crops and and, and plants generally under relatively stable environmental conditions, almost optimal conditions, are going to actually change. But first, to bring you this special edition of Babbage, we've teamed up with experts at one of the world's leading botanical gardens. Economist radio producer Howard Shannon is there now. Well, Ken, it's a place that's recognised worldwide as a centre of scientific excellence. It's one of the oldest botanical gardens in the world. Over a million people a year come to its 326-acre site to see its collection of over 40,000 plants. This is the Royal Botanic Gardens queue in West London. So let's start with one of the key scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century, unlocking the DNA sequencing of plants. Q has been at the forefront of this research, Joe Parker, a research fellow, has been telling us about the latest techniques in use to map a plant's DNA. This is our kind of (coughs) setup for sequencing DNA. So we use this word sequencing. What we mean is take colours liquid that's got bits of some living thing's DNA in it. And we've done a little bit of chemistry to prepare the DNA for this kind of reading process. And then we squirt the colourless liquid into this box here, which is you know, about the size of a, of a mobile phone, really, isn't it? We squirt it into this box, which is called a min-iron, and there is a... you can't really see it, but there's a tiny little window there which is composed of an artificial membrane with an electrical current running over it. And because DNA carries a very slight electrical charge, the DNA gets pulled through this membrane and by the electrical current, and as it goes through, it makes the electrical current kind of wiggle around and the wiggles correspond to the letters of the DNA. So if we kind of think back to school, DNA's got these A, C, G, T letters, and the order of the letters and the number of the letters is our genetic code, when we talk about reading the code. Here, as the individual pieces of DNA come through, they kind of tick up on this counter here, so we've got 275, 293 pieces of DNA. And what we do is we take each piece of DNA and we match this unknown DNA to our database which contains all of the DNA we've previously seen and then we get a score pops up here on the screen 
and the size of the score tells us what we think it is. So this is a, a method we're developing by which anybody with the right bits of kit, and the kit's pretty cheap, can identify an unknown thing right down to the species level. And this used to take potentially years, and now with this equipment and this technology and the, the programming we're doing here, you know, this data set I'm showing you here, we generated that in 15 minutes. So it's incredibly, incredibly fast. And of course, because it's based on DNA, which you match, you know, there's a mathematical process by which you match two pieces of DNA together in a database, it's objective. It's not a subjective question about how green does this look or are these bristles really long or a little bit long. You know, it's, it's, it's an objective thing. And once you've made that identification, you can then add that to the kind of heap of scientific knowledge. If you take the species rosa, the common rose, yeah. and we understand its DNA, does that mean we can manipulate the rose's colour? We can manipulate its fragrance and smell? Are we able to, to manipulate plants once we understand its DNA? So one of the important things about understanding how, say, plants express their form, how their abstract, if you like, DNA sequence turns into physical, tangible, you know, results is to understand things like which genes make which pigments, perhaps in the case of colour, or in the case of when a flower grows or how much it grows by, there are certain, you can think of it like the gene is like a tap. So if we have a, if we have a, a set of taps in a paint shop, a blue tap, a red tap and a green tap, then the gene for colour might be the red tap. And then when it gets turned on and how much it gets turned on by is down to something called gene regulation. Quite often you'll find that one of the big differences between related species or between individual cultivars of the same species, perhaps in the case of, of Rosa, it'll be the timing of those changes in the tap. And that's good news because actually modifying that kind of thing is potentially a lot easier if that's the road that we want to go down. My understanding is we've logged about 10% of the world's plants, of which, in, within that 10%, how many have we DNA sequenced? <laughs> well, Q publishes an annual survey called State of the World's Plants, which, as you would guess, collates all of this type of information, and I just so happen to have been the person lucky enough to put that data together, and which sounds big, but actually it was very easy, because there's only about, okay, wait for it, 130 plant genomes in total known to science that we've so far that we've so far sequenced yeah now of course there are um, you know hundreds of thousands of species so far we've only sequenced about 130 genomes and the reason for that is because genome sequencing used to be really 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 hard and the really good thing about getting genomic data is once you've got the genome of a species once we can all learn from it everybody can use that data once it's up there in the public database the public repository this is all public data i've shown you today we can all benefit from that information so it's it's kind of fascinating it's really you know a great time to be doing this stuff q's research fellow joe parker now as we just heard understanding the dna allows breeders to create a spectacular new range of plants especially flowers this is good news for the multi-million dollar floral industry. 
On the line now from New York is the economist New York bureau chief Patrick Fowles. So, Patrick, give me an idea of the size of the cut flower business in the United States. Well, it's much bigger than you might think. We we got to a number of about eighteen billion dollars for its annual revenues, and uh, as well as size, the fascinating thing is just how dynamic and innovative it is behind the scenes. It's a, an industry which has seen an amazing series of changes over the last hundred years. Where are these flowers coming from? In the late nineteenth century, Europeans were dazzled by the flowers that you could grow in the New World, even in New York. And for decades after that, people typically bought flowers produced locally. So, for example, in the Manhattan area, they were grown in greenhouses in Long Island. But you then saw a succession of technological changes alter where the flowers came from. So, when the interstate highway system was built in the 1950s and 60s, Americans began trucking flowers from California all around the country, and the hot climate there allowed different breeds to be grown. And then, even more intriguingly, in in 1967, someone wrote a, a thesis called "Bogota, Colombia, as a cut flower exporter to the world," and that thesis caused a revolution. And it pointed out that a good place to grow flowers was in the foothills of the Andes, particularly in Colombia and Ecuador, and that is now where the bulk of the stems you get in America are, are grown. America's historical epicenter for the flower market was the 28th Street flower market in Manhattan. How is that doing? The flower market in 28th Street is sort of an icon of of Manhattan and was started in the 1890s largely by Greeks, and it, it prospered for a long time. But just as you saw the revolution in flower production taking place, there was also a couple of revolutions in distribution. So first of all, supermarkets came along. Then in the 1980s, the telecoms revolution happened, and、uh, the Steve Jobs of the flower industry, a guy called Jim McCann, set up a company doing 1-800 flowers, and that was a, a sort of cheap phone-based system for ordering flowers. And then, lastly, in the 1990s, you saw internet-based florists. And what all of that means is the flower market has shrunk a lot. We reckoned its market share. Of cut flowers in the U.S. has gone from about ten percent to three percent, but it's still, in a way, the spiritual home of the flower business in America. And if you go there, you'll see blooms everywhere and a buzzing hive of activity. So, Patrick, now that science is interacting once again, in this case, not allowing us to transport flowers from a long distance, but create new sorts of colors and forms to the flowers because we alter the DNA. Do you expect a little bit of a renaissance in the flower market in Manhattan? Well, it's interesting. If you if you go there, you can find all sorts of bizarre flower breeds that people have created to try and keep interest. So, two of my favourites were Hot Eskimo, and there's also one called Charming Babe Spray, which someone has、uh, managed to design. So, I think you're right. That, and if you like, there are sort of three potential changes that will happen in the future to the flower business. One is, as you say, a kind of genetic engineering approach to flowers. The second is how changing demographics around the world alter the supply and demand for flowers. So some people think that as Japan's population shrinks, and there's a big flower production business there, they might might start exporting more of the surplus flowers around the world, and that will bring new breeds to Americans. And then the last big potential change is is climate. 
change. If you look at the indigenous species grown in New York, if you go up to the botanical gardens in the Bronx, they'll tell you that about 40% of the indigenous species grown in New York actually have foreign origins. And what that means is as the climate changes over time, the types of flowers that can be grown locally will change. So maybe in 20 or 30 years, an entirely different set of species will be blooming in Manhattan. That's really interesting. Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. You're listening to The Economist Technology and Science Show, Babbage. We're asking the question, what can science do for my garden? Well, one of the greatest contributions to gardeners has been the development of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides in the ongoing fight with pests and diseases. Our reporter, Howard Shannon, has been speaking with Richard Bugs, that's his real name, Richard Bugs, Hughes' senior research leader in plant health. Richard, what is the state of the world's pests and diseases in a general sense? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Unfortunately, it's getting worse because pests and diseases are spread all over the world in different places. And in specific locations, often the plants and the pests have co-adapted to each other. So the pests can't actually kill the plants, that the plants can resist them. But unfortunately, with international trade and travel, we're moving those pests and the plants around the world. We're kind of homogenising the whole system. And we're exposing plants to pests that they've never encountered before. And that's having a devastating effect. And unless we get this under control, unfortunately, it's going to get much, much worse. So what particular range of plants are taking, taking the brunt of this? It seems to be trees are particularly vulnerable at the moment. Trees are particularly vulnerable, but that's partly because we don't have systems for controlling pests and pathogens in them. With crop plants, we do have this problem of, of moving pests and pathogens around the world, but at least farmers are tending to be spraying every few months or, or weeks. And so if a new pest or pathogen comes in and a fungicide or a pesticide of some kind can be developed against them, then we have a way of applying them. But with trees, we've tended just to let trees get on with it and do their own thing. We don't spray our woodlands, partly because it's not economical to, and partly because we don't want to kill a whole load of really beneficial natural fungi and insects that are living in our woods. And so woodlands tend to be quite defenceless when it comes to these novel pests and pathogens. So whereabouts in the world is the, is the biggest problem at the moment? What, what, what's your, in your intray, what's top of your intray at the moment? One of the biggest issues is the emerald ash borer in North America. It's killing literally billions of ash trees and spreading very rapidly. It's been uncontrollable. It's a beetle that's come from East Asia. It was accidentally introduced and the effect has been absolutely devastating, not only in natural woodlands but also in urban plantations of ash. There's, There's many ash trees planted along roadsides in US towns and many of them have died. So at the moment we're working very closely with scientists at the USDA Forest Service in Ohio and we're screening lots of different ash species for resistance to the emerald ash borer and we're doing similar work here on ash dieback. We also are in touch with scientists in China where both ash dieback and the emerald ash borer exist naturally and the trees there seem to be resistant. The problem we have is that in the past people would collect seeds abroad if they wanted to bring in a a plant from abroad, an exotic plant, 
and then grow it up in the country where they wanted it to, to be planted. But today there's real appetite for trade in live plants. People go out to different countries and bring back living plants and there's trade even in very large trees. And in those pots they don't just bring the tree, they bring a whole ecosystem with that tree and in there you can have all sorts of pests and pathogens. So we are accelerating the spread of pests and pathogens through trade in live plants at the moment. Richard, are you worried about the future? Um, you know, 20 years on from now, that pests and diseases will just decimate the world's horticultural, agricultural industries? Or are you confident that people like yourself can get on top of it? There is a genuine concern that the spread of pests and pathogens around the world could have much, much greater effects as we go forward, particularly with global warming contributing as well and helping the spread. Is there anything the world's gardeners can do to, to help you out on this? Maybe just stop buying plants that shouldn't be uh, in places they shouldn't be? Yeah, we need to be careful about where we're getting our plants from. In the UK, the Woodland Trust has recently set up a scheme for nurseries whereby they can certify that they're actually growing their trees in the UK and so that the buyers can know that there's not such a large health risk problem as there would be if if the trees have been grown abroad. So we need schemes like that to really help people know what they're buying and be sure that they're, they're buying something that shouldn't be bringing in pests and pathogens. Q Senior Research Leader in Plant Health, Richard Buggs. Now, one of the issues brought up there is the theory that the world's climate is changing. Well, joining me now from Tromsø in the far north of Norway is the economist environment correspondent Miranda Johnson. Well, greetings, Ken, from uh, rather cold and slightly snowy Tromsø. Um, I am over here because Arctic sea ice this year appeared to have reached a record low and to be technically accurate a record low winter time maximum extent and NASA came out with that information in March total polar sea ice this year covered 6.26 million square miles which is about 790,000 square miles less than the average global minimum extent that was recorded between 1981 and 2010. And that's about the equivalent of having lost a chunk of sea ice larger than Mexico. So I'm here to find out what is going on and how climate change is affecting communities in the Arctic. We just heard from Q's plant health expert, Richard Buggs, on changes in plant health across the world. So are things changing in the Arctic? Yes, it is, Ken. Vegetation is changing enormously in the Arctic as we see permafrost thaw. Up to 20% of the tundra, in fact, is estimated to have switched to a boreal forest climate since the 1980s. So we're seeing new types of tree come up here. We're also in the water seeing species of pelagic fish moving towards the north as they seek cooler waters. And I've been speaking with reindeer herders today who have been talking about the new types of disease that their animals may suffer from as different uh, microbes and bacteria that usually are killed off migrate northwards as it gets warmer. That's already a, a problem for caribou. 
So, Miranda, what have we learned about the world's climate in 2016? We saw warming continue. 2015 was the hottest year on record. 2016 broke that record. And we saw a new one set. The world is approximately 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was in pre-industrial times. And carbon dioxide... Uh, reach new highs in the atmosphere. We now have a concentration of 400 parts per million. Global sea levels also rose during the 2015-2016 El Nino, and that has contributed to new records there as well. So there is a lot of change occurring, and it's against a policy background that is slightly firmer than it was insofar as the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to two Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures was ratified in 2016. But really, we don't have a lot of time to mitigate the effects of climate change, given that we are 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer already. Miranda Johnson, The Economist environment correspondent. Thank you. If you have any thoughts on mapping a plant's DNA, the U.S. flower business, pests and pathogens, or the effect of possible climate change, then please do put them in an email and send them our way to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. Finally, climate change and the uncertainty it throws up was one of the main drivers behind the need to establish the Millennium Seed Bank. This is a collection of the world's seeds held in cold storage at Kew's base at Wakehurst Place. Colin Club is the head of conservation science. Colin, what makes scientists believe all the seeds at Wakehurst need storing at a very cold temperature? Well, that's a, that's a great question because, of course, seed research and seed biology is its own discipline uh, within biology. And there, there's lots of work that's been going on and looking at the seed and the functions of the seed. And what we certainly know is that we can't store all seeds. We thought there was a sort of dichotomy, two different groups of seeds, one that are called orthodox seeds and these are ones that turns out we can store in at cold temperatures and are, are relatively easy to to dry out under controlled conditions and then store those another group uh, which are called recalcitrant are then seeds that, that that aren't able to be dried down in these kind of controlled conditions without the the membranes being disruptive and they they tend to be seeds that are quite fleshy they've got quite a lot of material associated with them so the drying process is challenging and they tend to be associated with very moist humid conditions so a lot of tropical forest trees and and plants would have these sorts of recalcitrant seeds and so one branch of seed biology is really trying to look at recalcitrant seeds and work out how we can store those and there that's where we're moving to things like you know can you extract the embryo and store that in liquid nitrogen cryopreservation or are there other ways we can store that to try and get over this problem of not being able to to dry them down sufficiently and then what we're finding of course as as, as research gets uh, you know we understand things it's it's like any research the more we understand the more it 
we realise we don't know. And so there are a lot of plants that we thought were orthodox, but actually they, they, they tend to lose their viability. So one particular group of plants we're, we're very interested in are what are called crop wild relatives. And those are the kind of, if you like, the, the cousins of the, the plants that we've currently highly bred for growing as crops to make sure that we are able to, as it were, hold and understand the genetic diversity of that group of plants. Because what we think is going to be happening over the next few years with climate change is that crops and and, and plants generally that might have been, you know, they've evolved and and we've pushed that evolution in terms of our, our breeding processes under relatively stable environmental conditions, almost optimal conditions, are going to actually change because the whole thing we know about climate change is it's more uncertainty, it's, it's more violent, more extreme activities. And so what we want to be able to do is, is make sure we've got the genetic basis of that species so that we're able to bring out, you know, the things that grew on the edges of cliffs that in the most difficult maybe they've got alleles or genes in them that are are useful to be able to survive and, and, and so it allows its material that crop breeders can start introducing to hopefully make more resilient crops and so that we're able to respond positively to to these potentially negative impacts of climate change colin club q's head of conservation science and that's all for this edition of babbage Many thanks to the folks at the Royal Botanical Kew Gardens. And don't forget to pick up this week's Economist or find us online at economist.com. If you like our journalism, subscribe by going to subscribe.economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 